This is a warning that this episode contains references to suicide in case that's a trigger for you. I think traditionally, obviously, this idea of being this male, stoic, strong supporter type, I, th- I think that's that still exists and it's still bleeding in. I, I think that, you know, the importance of mental health has come a long way in the last five years. And I think men are a lot more willing to approach the topic and to, you know, appear weak. And that's in air quotes, of course, because really it's it's strength to be able to do that. But there is this thing that gets in the way for men. And, and we see it week after week after week of so badly wanting to connect and, and share what they're feeling and what they're struggling with, but just feeling that there's not a place for that. Hello and welcome to Enough, the podcast. I'm your host, Mandy Leto. This show is a mashup of inspiration and exploration around what gets in the way of us feeling good enough. If you're a leader whose life looks shiny and together from the outside, but inside your inner critic assures you that you are one hot mess, this podcast is for you. It's time to own your worth quirks, foibles, imperfections, and all. Welcome to Enough. Not feeling good enough, strong enough, resilient enough, successful enough, attractive enough, This can pose enormous mental health challenges on men too, particularly during a pandemic. According to research from the Prior Hospitals Group, 77% of men suffer from some sort of stress, anxiety, or depression. 40% of men in crisis admit that they don't talk to anyone, often because they don't feel like they have someone they can turn to. Currently, according to Movember, 75% of suicides are committed by men. This episode is not just for blokes. However you gender identify, there's learning for all of us in this episode. I want to introduce you to men's mental health advocate, Addison Brazil, who knows these challenges firsthand. I'm not someone up above in the bleachers looking in on a bunch of grieving people studying. I'm, I've been in the arena for 10 years. And so if that perspective is valuable to you, then, you know, this is the conversation for you. Addison lost his teenage brother to cancer. He found his father after suicide. Addison also survived a fatal car accident that killed a dear friend of his. In 2020, Addison became a co-founder of Tether, a men's mental health and well-being app focused on the power of peer support. His work has been featured in big publications from the New York Times to TMZ to the Washington Post. And luckily for us, he's working on his first book. In today's episode, Addison messes with our thinking around grief. I had never thought about it this way before. And he talks to us about the importance of support and daily emotional fitness. Let's dive in. So you're no stranger to challenging emotions. And because of personal experience, you have dedicated a big part of your life and energy to supporting men's mental health. Yes, that, that is true. Yeah. You know, it's something that I always find within my own process of dealing any dealing with anything that I've been through is there's always this moment or this seed where I'm starting to think about, well, how, how many other people are going through this and what are the challenges that they're facing? And, and so it's, it's kind of just built into me now that, you know, Um, I look for these opportunities to start to transform what have been very traumatic, uh, grief-filled processes for me into some sort of supportive opportunity um, where the learning can go further in that way. A lot of my coaching clients are women. They are professional. They are 
rocking it in the world and, you know, in some cases performing while feeling all the kind of squinchy human emotions of inadequacy and all the feels on the inside. So I'm curious, I want to explain something to you that I found with a previous guest called Sarah Norman, and she calls herself the imperfection specialist. And what she sees with a lot of her burnout clients, overachievers, people pleasers, perfectionists, is something predominantly in women, not only in women, but is the perfectionism cycle. So wherein we feel super inadequate about ourselves, even if we're performing perfection on the outside, the inside is kind of like a creme brulee. You know, it's all squidgy and the outside might have a a nice firm exterior, but inside there's all the feels going on. So it's a three-step cycle. So you feel inadequate and gross and uh, performery and impostery and all of the other feelings. And then the next step is trying to be perfect, trying to hustle for worth, trying to do whatever needs to be done to get value and worthiness and love and acceptance and all of those things. And then because, hey, human, we fail. And then the cycle begins again, where we have all of those inadequate emotions. And I love that Sarah's kind of tied that up into a little bow for us because so many people put up their hands and say, yep, that resonates. So As women, and I'm grossly generalizing here, but there's often this pressure for us to feel good enough and for us to come across as pleasant, pleasing, perfect, polished. And I'm wondering if in your experience of the 5,000 plus men that are in your community that you encounter every week, do you have a male equivalent of that immense pressure to come across a certain way. Yeah, I, I think so. And I, at first, I know people can't see me, but I'm, I was just smiling that during that whole time because, of course, you know, so much of that perfectionism cycle resonates with me. And I'm, I'm going, yep, yep, yep. And that happens a lot. I sit in on men's groups and they're like, this guy is like, breaking his heart open and why is Addison in the corner smiling and I'm like because I'm excited for the growth and the progress that comes with that type of awareness like I'm like oh here we go here we go here we go um but yeah as as far as that goes I think you know traditionally obviously this idea of being this male stoic strong supporter type I think I think that's that still exists and it's still bleeding in I I think that you know, the importance of mental health has come a long way in the last five years. And I think men are a lot more willing to approach the topic and to, you know, appear weak. And that's in air quotes, of course, um, because really it's it's strength to be able to do that. But I there is this just this this thing that gets in the way for men. And, and we see it week after week after week of of so badly wanting to connect and, and share what they're feeling and what they're struggling with, but just feeling that there's not a place for that, that there's not a safe place for that, that that won't bleed into then their measure of success or fatherhood or, you know, being a partner. So um, I definitely see it on the ground level from, you know, that peer point of view of what men share with me week after week after week, that, yeah, that, that definitely that exists and and there's a perfectionist cycle almost about how if you are willing to go into your mental health how you do it and and where you do it and you know so it's like that that cycle almost applies to if you get through the first barrier of being willing to express yourself and start to dive deeper you know then there's sort of like another mini perfectionist cycle about how that happens you know, and what you're expecting. And, and I know we've talked offline about this, but, you know, the one thing I see over and over again is that, that men come to this, this program, this problem in this cross-section looking for a fix, looking for something that will fix them and get them, you know, sort of back, back up and running. Um, And um, as they, they grow that emotional toolkit and realize it's something that you honor, which is something I always find myself saying, um, that's really where, you know, it gets interesting where the perfection cycle does not work with a true um, honoring of a mental health journey. That's something that, you know, is blaring red every every week in in my eyes looking in. Yeah, yeah. And I think the thing that makes the perfection cycle so insidious is precisely because it's a distraction. And this is what Sarah Norman in the imperfection specialist was talking about, that if we can get ourselves in to this 
you know, playing victim or feeling bad about ourselves. Like we somehow chronically need to feel bad about ourselves. That becomes like the state that feels air quotes, normal, right? And then we go on and try to buy ourselves something to go get a dopamine hit or, you know, launch ourselves into some ridiculous diet or weightlifting program or, you know, whatever the male equivalent of that would be. And then, you know, we fail at it. So what it is, is it's a perfect system for staying stuck because emotions are piling up over here, right? Grief, loss, uncertainty, you know, fear, and all the good feelings too. But we don't have access to them because we're going around the roundabout of the perfectionism cycle. So it's a distraction. And really what I want to talk about with you today is if we get into the messy distraction and part of at least the work that I'm doing is in coming back to the wholeness of ourselves is realizing that this journey, when we realize that we're on this cycle, whatever you want to call it, that it's, it's not sustainable. It's not real. It's never going to get you anywhere because it, there's no way to win the perfectionism cycle or the game, you know, it's just around and around and around like, Oh, here we are at this roundabout again. Like which juncture am I at now? And I think many people are asleep at the wheel there. And for those people, because they've had some kind of a a life incident or a wake up call or something that has shook them awake to say, Hey, you can't win this game. And we need to sit in our proverbial mucky diaper over here where all the emotions are piling up and the way out is through. And what I love about your work, Addison, is that you talk particularly in this, in this pandemic and you know what's coming up in the post-pandemic environment is that so many of us are feeling the feels and we wouldn't necessarily describe them as grief because maybe we haven't lost someone or, you know, something terrible hasn't happened to us, but talk to us a little bit about like sitting in this emotion and why that can actually be useful for people. Not even that it's a fix, but that it's necessary for us to sit in these emotions. Yeah, absolutely. I think like you said, there's these things that sort of wake us up a lot of the time that send us on a journey like this. But for many of us, we don't even realize that we are doing all these things to distract us, that we are avoiding something. You know, it's just sort of become our schedule of scrolling and clicking and viewing and, you know, what going out and overachieving, whatever your vice is, or like me, if you're a master of many, you know, you're doing all these things. And, and like you said, I sort of um, in a way that I never wanted to be, become a, a lived experience expert in these three very comparative and complex grief processes, you know, that where I've, I've been grieving basically for 10 years, three, you know, very big deaths, but also a lot of mini life um, events in between that. And, and one thing that I've noticed over the last year is, is people, like you said, feeling stuck there's like at least one point every week, no matter how quote unquote good it's going, where people are just stuck and the step forward and, and, and it's wearing off. Like Netflix is not the answer to that anymore or scrolling mindlessly through Instagram or, or even sort of like performatism, like, you know, inspirational YouTube videos, just not cutting it. There's deeper work to do. And, and so you know, as I'm sitting there with people after feeling so isolated by grieving for the last 10 years, um, you know, I'm sitting there and they're explaining it and, and they're just saying how they can't put words around what they're feeling. And I'm just like almost again, like smiling and starting to laugh and I'm going, you're grieving. And there's this idea that because there hasn't been a physical death, like you said, that that they, there's not a right to grieve or that they couldn't possibly be grieving. But, you know, grief is, is the reaction or the process that follows the loss of anything that's meaningful to you. And we've all had that um, in the pandemic. And, um, and we've all been grieving in a sense for a prolonged period of time um, without realizing it. And, and I really think that, you know, you can kind of do everything you 
you want and you naturally do. It's like you said, our systems are this perfect security system to keep us from feeling those scary things. But as long as we're, we're kept from that, we're just prolonging that process of, of really starting to, to sit into this. And this is something, I wrote something recently and I'll share and it. it. It went along the lines of, you know, after when you're grieving, after the, um, the casseroles and the condolences fade away, there's this silence that's waiting for you. And you can either sit in that silence and honor it and work through it piece by piece, or you can spend the next, you know, two to five years doing anything and everything to avoid that silence, uh, like I did. And 10 years later, I want to give everybody sort of this, you know, if you are grieving, if you are feeling this overwhelming sense of grief, or, you know, you're starting to put it together, and it's a mixture of emotions that that really does define grief, and, and you're now just putting it together as you listen to this. But but the opportunity is there to sit in that silence and start to honor that so that, that you don't end up sort of, sometimes it can be you know overachieving, but sometimes it can be very destructive, avoiding that silence. Um, and that's something that I, I know all too well. Um, and I began writing about in, in the book that I'm writing right now. But yeah, it's just, it's, it's very interesting that there's this, this collective idea. And I know because I had it for eight years that grief is something you fix. That it's something that you know if i just do a then you know this will be the result of that and i i have to say i've tried every shortcut possible i've you know i've really i've really done this and i and it's in the hopes that other um people don't have to that there is no shortcut it's it you know it's something you build a daily relationship with and you honor as it comes up and and whatever comes up i mean there's days where you're going to laugh hysterically about the things that you thought would be and there's days where you'll you know you cry or you feel, feel numb and it's not about judging every micro moment of your grief process it's about honoring it and going okay and you know having that awareness and then and then choosing things that can serve you in a world of endless distractions some of which are actually designed to make you feel addicted to them like you know the apps and, and whatnot we have most of most things right um somebody actually said to me i don't know if you'll ever not be addicted to something but you can choose what you're addicted to so you know there is a spectrum of things that can serve you a lot better you know you can be addicted to positive thinking you know you can be addicted to negative thinking you know so it's so it's um it's really as humans i think we really form that habit quite quickly and so it's hard to catch but if it's ever sort of something you're doing to not feel something else um I can say in my experience, that's that's uh, what my mentor would call cheap spending. Uh, and so maybe start investing and in taking the time and, and honoring that and, um, you know, going through what you're going through. Hi, I'm Catherine Kell from episode 10. I teach self-compassion, which is about being in kind, understanding and supportive relationship with ourselves. I agree with Addison that grief isn't something we fix. We aren't something we fix. And grief is an ongoing process. As someone who's spent years processing grief, I say that I live alongside mine. And in living alongside it, I'm honoring it, validating it. There's no correct way to grieve. We can be so critical of ourselves, expecting we should be over things. A reminder that you're not doing anything wrong. You're a beautiful human made up of a lifetime of experiences. Give yourself grace. And when grief rises up, you can try placing a hand over your heart, closing your eyes if you feel comfortable to do so, and acknowledging that this is so hard right now. Maybe say to yourself something like, may I be kind to myself? May I reach out for what I need? And stay connected to others whenever you can. You're not alone. If you're enjoying this episode, there might be something for you in episode 10 too. Let's get back to Addison Brazil. How would someone know that what they're experiencing is actually grief? Because that thing you said, I think probably a lot of jaws just dropped. It's like, oh, I never thought about that. How do you know? How could they identify that? I think simplifying it back down again, if there has been a, a loss of anything that you found meaningful in your life, you know, and like I said, being very careful never to define for me personally what 
grief is and isn't because that process is so unique to every loss and every individual. But, you know, if you're aware that things have just really not gone the way that you had hoped or you had planned and, and you can lose what you were hoping to happen. You can work at something and lose before you even had it, you know, and you have to grieve that loss. So, you know, losing a job, um, having to switch homes because of COVID, you know, just your whole life for me. I mean, my whole life was built around health and fitness. So yes, after I was in the accident, I was grieving the physical loss of my friend who I lost, but I wasn't in a deep state of grief about not being able to work out, not being able to socialize at the level, not being like the physically most able person in my family, able to help people move and be useful in a physical way and you know, all that stuff. So it's it's there's so much there's so much beyond a physical death there where it's if it's not what you really had hoped for, if what you were really building or what you had built and now have lost, it's it's that meaningful loss of anything. And that's, and that's really going to be your measure. And then, you know, we hear these tidbits of things, you know, like the five stages of grief, you know, and, and they're even within that, even in all the study. And I always like to say this, like, you know, I'm not someone up above in the bleachers looking in on a bunch of grieving people studying. I'm, I've been in the arena for 10 years. And so if that perspective is valuable to you, then, you know, this is the conversation for you because, you know, I'm with, with the other grievers on the ground floor as a peer, also navigating my own grief process. But even if you look at everything that's offered to us from studying point of view, none of that is linear. The stages of grief aren't linear. They're secular. It can come back around and, it, and you can go, oh, it, this can't be grief. I've already felt angry about not getting that job or losing my job or what, or what COVID has done to my life. And it's, it's secular and it comes in waves. And, and that's why I think a lot of people start to get trapped in this idea of my grief is over. My grief is fixed. I have grieved. And I really, really try to advocate, especially to the men when I notice it in our community, is that the, the acceptance around this being an active process for the rest of your life isn't accepting that this will you will be sad and grieving for the rest of your life, but that this is going to be a daily relationship every single day. How that thing did or didn't go, what you did or didn't lose, it, it is a daily relationship for how you live the rest of your life. Um, you know, and, and we've all had that person in our family. If I had just gotten that promotion, or if I had just, you know, if I just had $10,000, or if I, you know, any sentence that starts like that is really coming from grief. They're grieving what they truly believed would have been a meaningful change to their life or was a meaningful change, and they're processing it. And I think that we like to put a lot of words ahead of that processing, like be smarter than it, but it is always going to be something that viscerally we have to move through. And again, just going to keep saying it, honor every day. There's no 24 hour, you know, sale online for this one course that's going to get you through your grief and, and you'll be good. Because if you think about it, whatever was lost, or in my case, whoever is lost, that's something that every day I have to figure out how that weaves its way into my life, you know, because I change every day. So my relationship to not having my brother or my father or my friend, that changes every single day. And, and we've been doing that every day of this pandemic, clinging to information to try to figure out when we can call the end of this meaningful change rather than actively grieving that there already has been a meaningful change, a loss for each of us. Um, and that's just something that, you know, after these 10 years of feeling like the guy who was in the corner that no one understood. Now I'm sitting in the corner of this community of up to 9,000 men nodding my head going, yeah, that's, that's grief. That's yeah, you're grieving, you know? And again, I'm doing it with a smile because it's just like, oh, I can, I can be valuable here. I really understand what you're going through. And I understand at the same time, how incredibly unique it is to you and that I can't generalize it either. So I just can be here before, during, and after within that process and, and do what I can to just, you know, make sure you feel above all else that you're not alone in grieving. It's something we all must do. And that's, you know, one thing that I would say this pandemic has been such a big opportunity for is to take grief 
out of this individual isolating process between two people, like around this formalized idea of funeral and cemeteries. And this is a community process now because we all have one thing, like when we're in war times or, you know, one thing that we all can agree that we have to grieve as a community, you know, no matter which way it went for you, whether you experienced the loss of people or not, uh, there has been a meaningful shift to the way we live our lives and avoiding that grief can cause a lot of, of pain later and a lot of mental distress later. So um, I don't know, in my head, I'm like, hey, let's let's all have start having grief parties, you know, and just processing and talking about what's changed and how it feels. And because like you said, the only way out is through. Um, and a lot of people right now might be searching for a comeback, but again, we're not coming back. We can't go you know, it's it's like those genie rules from Aladdin. I always bring this up, but it's like the, he can't, even the genie can't bring something back from the dead. So our way of life pre-COVID, no matter what, we have to move forward with the understanding we now have. And so no matter what, there's a grief process. Even if tomorrow there was magic and there's no more COVID, we still have that process that we've been through. So we're, there's no skipping it, you know? And I think that's something that we all naturally want to do with those magnificently built systems, like you said, we have is to, you know, no, that's scary. I don't want to feel any of that. So let's just wait till it's better. And I can tell you that that, that doesn't really work in that. Mm-hmm. But it fills most of the middle chapters of my book. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know. so I'm hearing you say a lot of really important things that grief doesn't need to look like what we've thought grief needs to look like. It can be the loss of an identity, the loss of a relationship, the loss of a career, the loss of a dream, the loss of ease and movement and, you know, lots of rights and liberties that we feel have been taken away. And the kind of compression of life that we faced can also cause a sort of grief because say somebody has been a very social person and, you know, the loss of all of that, it, it can really, it can feel worse in a time like this because there are people who are grieving loved ones. And then it's like, oh, I miss going to the pub with my friends. And, you know, I should just stiff upper lip it and get on with the job here. Um, So grief doesn't need to look a certain way. It's a very individual thing. That's what I'm hearing you say. And what I'm also hearing you say is that we tend to want to avoid feeling what might feel like an endless dark pit of free falling into a feeling that we know we don't know we'll ever come out of. So of course, it's much easier to distract ourselves with screens and alcohol and drugs and sex and internet shopping and video games and, you know, stuffing ourselves to the gills with donuts or whatever, like whatever's your jam. This is not a judgment, but it's just that also trying not to feel can seem like a short-term solution, the cheap, easier, whatever your mentor called it. And that ultimately doesn't work. That, in my experience of having done those kind of things, it actually makes you feel worse when you come out of it. And then, you know, it starts the perfectionism cycle again. That No, I'm only drinking kale smoothies and I'm going to do 500 sit-ups a day and I'm not going to go on Instagram and all of those things, which is, of course, unsustainable. What I also heard you say is that there are some glimmers of hope, which will come to coming into the post-pandemic world, because there is no going back to what existed before. That security door has slammed shut. And now we're left to figure it out with our emotions for those of us who are at that stage where we're ready to explore being in our emotions and to understand that no matter what fix we look for, the process of going through these complex emotions is not a one and done. And what I'm hearing you say is the way through is, first of all, not doing it alone. And second is understanding, like really surrendering to that idea that this is a process. This is now, for for however that looks like in the foreseeable future, this is a part of who I am now. And it will be riding sidecar with me. So I can pretend it's not there by blottowing it out with some form of addiction or numbing, or I can choose to actually understand that these emotions are part of what it is that make us human and that they provide us opportunities. If we allow ourselves to be courageous enough to sit in them and open ourselves up to connection 
this happens so often. I, in the previous episode with Jen Pasteloff, she was suffering with hearing loss and depression and anxiety and hopelessness and, and anorexia. And she started to teach yoga classes and realized that if she talked about these challenges, she thought nobody's going to come to my class. And the opposite happened. She started to build a community of people who were saying, me too. I don't feel so alone when I come to your class. The second thing that I'm hearing you say that is so powerful is really all we're talking about here is normalizing feeling feelings. We can't control them. We can't hope that certain ones will walk on by and other ones will be here all the time, that we're in this place of honoring. I love that word. It's such a nourishing word of honoring whatever shows up with non-judgment. And I like to look at this almost like looking at it as the witness or the observer, like, oh, isn't that interesting? I'm, I'm having this feeling of, of real sadness and loss today. And just coming at that with curiosity and compassion instead of like, I should be over this by now. What's wrong with me? Yeah. And I, I, so many men have asked me, Addison, how do you do honoring? How do you do honor the journey? <laughs> like you don't do it. And that's why it's such a great word, like you're saying, because it's, it doesn't, it doesn't bring on this sense of these tasks or this way to do anything. It's just, you know, being around it, being with it. How can I be in this moment? Those are the ways. And there's not really room for judgment in that because we don't have these black and white ways of, of how honoring is or isn't done. You know, I, I like that, that it's like, you know, people get frustrated because it's kind of like, well, I don't really know what that means. And it's like, Give me exactly, a plan. exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, well, yeah. Well, how does that feel? How does that feel to your body? You know, it's like, oh God. <laughs> and maybe it's this, it's who we become in the process of honoring the grief, as opposed to if I do this for a hundred days or put in my 10,000 Malcolm Gladwell hours, then I will be free of grief. It doesn't work that way. It's really when we learn to honor it. I was thinking of the Billie Holiday song, you know, good morning, heartache, here you are again. And it's just like, yep, here you are again. And I'll make space for you. I'll honor you. I don't have to like you, but I can at least be neutral about you and, and just honor that you're here and, and be with you with compassion and curiosity. Can you speak to this a little bit about what you're seeing in the men's mental health space as a result of the pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so with, with Tether, when we started the app, you know, one of the biggest statistics that really drove us forward was this idea that 77% of men were dealing with some sort of stress, anxiety, or depression. Um, but 40% were saying that they wouldn't reach out or ask for help unless they had thoughts of suicide or self-harm. So that gap became fascinating to me. And obviously, as somebody who's found their father after suicide and, and dealt with both the pre and the post of of just what what a male suicide does within a community or what any suicide does, of course. But when we looked at that, and then we have these other statistics that are now starting to float in that during COVID, for instance, that 42% of men considered suicide. So it's being exacerbated. So we had this epidemic, we were building Tether, no idea a pandemic's coming. And then we're put in this situation where we were already building this loneliness and isolation solution for men to bring them together at that peer level. And then we have like sort of the biggest event in recent history that actually we're being told the solution to in some ways is to isolate and to stay alone. Um, and so from that point, it just, you know, the engine was roaring of like really becoming passionate about about the situation, because I think about even, you know, everything my dad had accessible to him, everything, you know, that was going on in the world at the time. And then I think about placing him in the COVID world right now. And it's like, okay, that's not a very good recipe, you know? And so it's not surprising to me that we ended up at the statistic of, you know, 75% of suicides being men um, with what we were looking at and how stigma still existed. And, and we were noticing that in the landscape, Peer support is slowly being, you know, brought in. Even in California, they're starting to pass legislation to bring peer support into the mental health landscape. But also just this idea that 
that awareness was really being taken care of. Things like Movember, we see all the men growing the mustaches and, you know, it's okay to not be okay. And, and, you know, so I was looking at where can we really show up in this landscape and start to really change these statistics. And I just feel like even if men felt that the stigma was starting to be broken down, there wasn't a tool for what we've been talking about, which is daily emotional fitness, which is showing up to whatever you're feeling daily. Again, not a quick fix, not one retreat, not, you know, something you find on a funnel page online kind of thing. I was talking to my co-founder right before this call and this morning was that morning like it just every little thing went wrong and the coffee spilled my mask broke the dogs like tangled around me like just all the things and i'm, I'm laughing for the the whole walk back you know i'm just laughing and i just was in the elevator again that quiet that silence like as we went up the 18 floors and i'm just like this is such a big accomplishment. I mean, I'm now the CEO of a tech company. I'm writing a book, like all these things people like to attach themselves to. But I have to say for me, like my biggest honor badge is mornings like this morning where all these things weren't happening to me. <laughs> they were just happening. And I had that choice where I, you know, could be like, okay, this is the way this is going. Because maybe for me having to navigate through such traumatic grief processes doesn't leave room for me to accidentally kind of go into grief about the way your morning was supposed to go. You know, maybe that's my gift that, you know, I, I have this sort of lens now for like all the opportunities we have to grieve if we set it up that way. And it's exactly what you're saying. If you be truly believe you can control the way your morning's going to go from the time you wake up to the time you arrive at work or whatever it is, then you, then you really are setting yourself up to be grieving by 10 a.m. every day because there's going to be a loss of what you thought was going to happen in that hour. And, and for some of us, maybe it's easier because the one thing that I don't even have to be sort of the, the vision of or the mascot of is that we are all going to grieve you know, like I said, the loss of anything meaningful, but also eventually the physical death of someone, if not ourselves. That is, that is, you know, just like grief, like death and grief itself, that cannot be changed, you know? And so being able to start these micro processes of grief, honor them, maybe even love them a little bit, like laughing at, you know, the way things could have gone or seeing where the opportunity is, you know, without getting right into that intensive mindset work that of course I did too around these processes. But, you know, just being willing to be a part of the process, well, it is, maybe something smaller. And that's, that was my biggest thing for Tether. My co-founder, he wanted to build the community of men he's never had. He wanted to be able to feel and be in a world where men felt, you know, inherently masculine and comfortable doing that. I was looking back after 10 years, after almost losing myself to suicide, going, what is the glue? And it was community like that. So I want to, I want to build that for other men, you know? And so we, we came together and that's why we, we built Tether, but it, it's, yeah, it's just this, it's this really cool opportunity to just sort of dive into it before a life event deems it absolutely necessary to have community around you, before a life event deems it absolutely necessary to grieve in the capital G way that we see in movies or have experienced as children. We've all been to our first funeral, our first, you know, like w whatever that is. And like the idea that grief is reserved for those mourning all in black periods of life, you know, that we kind of see it that way. Um, I think it inhibits us and it, it doesn't properly prepare us for the one thing that we all will eventually have already and are not accepting it or will really grieve in a deeper, harder way. Um, I, I just, again, I'll just say that every morning, every single morning I wake up 10 years later and it's like, all right, like, you know, and breaking my own heart, like you said, but like blissfully, because it's not something I can control of just going, okay, so yeah, they're gone. And we're going to make, you know, our daily peace with that. And this is how I'm going to move forward.
word, but there's not really a day I'd be lying if I said, you know, to anyone that I, I took this pill or I did this one retreat and, you know, it's like grief doesn't exist for me anymore. It's like I open my eyes every day and I go, how does this day go without my brother? How does this day go without my father? How does this way go, you know, and, and, and not holding on to it as something that I, I need to be doing, but but really just allowing to to happen uh, every day. As exhausting as that sounds, it's actually less exhausting and I burn out way less when I just allow it than when I try to not grieve for periods of time. It's like holding your breath for as long as possible. I call it sucking in your emotional gut. There's only so there's only so yeah. long you can do that. So this daily emotional fitness, because I'm a geek and an academic, I am bullet pointing some of this. So I want to make it clear that I'm not making a 10 step plan here. I'm just gathering threads of if someone thinks I'm really pumped up about this episode and I want to start practicing daily emotional fitness. So here's what I got so far. So you're going to jump in when I, if I've forgotten anything. So number one, silence is okay. When that, when stuff comes up and things bubble up, it's okay. You're not doing anything wrong. You don't need to numb out. You don't need to have the radio and the TV or both on at all times. Silence is okay. Silence is, is desirable. Even emotions are okay. Point number two, and they may continue to bubble up forever. As you said, not a day goes by when you don't think about the loved one that ones that you've lost. And if three months, six months, three years, six years down the road, you're still feeling the feels for a relationship that didn't materialize or a job that you didn't get. What I've learned from you is that it's okay. There's not an expiry date on those things. And it doesn't mean that you can't let go. And it's, it's, it's an honoring. It's an honoring that when we allow those things to pass through us. And with your morning gone wrong today, I think that's point number three is noticing and being at choice. So I could allow this to become a bad day and slide into victim. And that's being at choice is different than not honoring your feelings. And I think that's a really important distinction that you made. It's not that you're riding roughshod over your feelings by being at choice. It's quite the opposite. It's really pulling yourself almost up to witness or to observer and saying, I can, it's like the choose your own adventure stories. Like I could go this way or I could go that way. I'm at choice. How do I want to go? The, Pause pre-numbing is point number four. So you're about to spend three hours scrolling. No judgment here, but what am I hoping that I'm going to get from this? And will this truly give me what I'm hoping it will give me? And you might do it anyway. That's, uh, again, not a judgment call. And then the, the, the final two points, one, I heard you talk about levity, like really being able to laugh at yourself. Grief doesn't have to be all heavy. Mm-hmm. Oh, grief in my family is hilarious. <laughs> like, I mean, I have a dark sense of humor. I know that. But like, I mean, some, I mean, that's my experience now. And it's just gonna, you know, put, I, I'll tell you both, both rides to the cemetery on both my father and my, the driver must have been like, who are these people? But that's just... I mean, humor is honestly my best friend. It was my brother's best friend through his cancer. Like, it's just, that's, God, let that in. Let that in. It can be so funny if you allow it to be, you know, and not in a way that I'm throwing it away, but just like, wow, we're really, we're in it here. (laughs) And which brings me to at least my whistle-stop tour of the daily emotional fitness is the honoring. And the honoring is kind of like the suitcase that brings all of these things together. If we can hold our grief with lightness, we don't need to white knuckle our grief, right? Like we don't need to make it suck because it feels unfamiliar or sometimes it doesn't feel good. Sometimes in, in my experience, sometimes grief can be neutral or it has it's funny moments and it's just it's a feeling like every other feeling so if we allow it to the party we get to actually understand what is hey what are the multi sides of grief in my life have i missed anything important the only thing that i would add in there um and this comes from like the tech side of me too but is is the acknowledgement piece uh and the awareness piece so how this translates for instance into the app is we've built an emotional fitness tracker and so what that allows you to do each day is to just clock in how you're feeling and what maybe from a category of life, what, you know, whether it's self-care, health, whatever, where that's coming from and make a little note for yourself. And 
the reason I say that is because I've noticed year after year after year, we really are, we find it so easy to clock in when we're having a quote unquote negative experience, you know, it's so easy. And then, and then these are adding up, right. And those are adding up when you go to your doctor, it's like, well, I remember feeling depressed more than not. I remember being sad more than not. And What's interesting to me is at the end of every week when I look, and obviously for anyone male identifying, you can start doing this tomorrow through Tether, but you could also, you know, grab it, um, you know, and be doing it on, on a calendar and just like little smiley face of, you know, checking in every day at the same time and making a little note for yourself. No one is seeing this, no one is judging this, and I invite you not to judge it yourself. But what you'll probably find, like I have in so many of the men in the community, is that it's not as constant as you think that those negative emotions. It's actually quite surprising how often I click the emoji that represents being content. But if you asked me at a week where I wasn't tracking, where I wasn't aware, I would just probably call up on Wednesday when I wasn't feeling quote unquote well, where I was honoring my sadness. That's what I would remember. And I think this is going to be a really cool, interesting thing as the future of, of therapy and medicine goes on. Because if you imagine rather than just generalizing how you've been feeling for two months when you finally see a therapist or when you finally see your doctor or going back through this calendar and being able to really go, well, actually, yeah, three out of every six days, I'm feeling low, low, you know, I'm honoring deep sadness, you know, and what can we do about that rather than thinking, oh, this doctor's here to fix this. So I'm going to tell him about all or her about all the times that I felt this, you know, and I think that the biggest part, like any physical fitness regime is that that tracking and that awareness. And, and I think the word we're leaning towards is accountability, but a very positive outlook on that word, because I know sometimes it doesn't come with the best feeling, the word accountability, but just that self accountability of, of, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to be afraid to look under, you know, the bed. I'm just going to check in with myself real quick, make a note. It doesn't have to change the way I live the rest of my life or even the rest of today, but I'm aware. And just building your, your comfort with being aware of your state of being. And that's it. It's just like, you know, allow that acknowledgement piece in there and that awareness piece in there. And you really start to get to know yourself. And at least from my point of view, it's either doing that throughout the years has either led to getting the help I needed building the community I needed or finding it, or on the other side, really bringing some badass perspective that I'm grateful a lot more than I'm in the deep sort of down of grief, you know, and, and it would be a whole nother conversation, but you know, my gratitude is my grief and vice versa. But you know, where I, I, I say that to everyone, what makes you different than anybody else? And I said, you'll never meet anyone who is so grief stricken and so grateful at the same time. I don't understand myself. I don't understand. Because like we've talked about, and like you said, my story in the intro, you know, I find myself, I have found myself in the worst situations watching people that I absolutely love die, but I've always been just to the left of it. And there's so much space right there that I've spent learning being just to the left of the thing we all fear, you know, the grief of ourselves, of our lives. Really, this conversation has been so, so powerful. I have learned a ton and I'm so grateful for the work that you are doing and who you're being in the world. And I know people will want to run to find out where they can learn more from you. Where, where's the best place for people to play with you? Yeah, I mean, me personally, you can just go to addisonbrazil.com. And then Tether is T-E-T-H-R, and we're on both app stores. Um, Tether.men is our website. And uh, yeah, we're just, we're just heating up. And uh, one thing that you'll find when you check us out is how, how much celebrating actually goes into mental health and emotional fitness. And that's maybe that's the ninth point. If well, we won't get to 10, but, but you know, the ninth point is, is the importance of celebration and just celebrating. And I think celebrating breaks up that perfection cycle to bring it full circle more than anything to, to celebrate when it's not going well, when you are feeling each part of that cycle of going like, yes, I, you know, I failed or like, I feel like absolute crap, but I'm aware and celebrating the awareness rather than the result. I think, you know, that's, that's such a big thing. So please, 
please, you know, if you're struggling, of course, if you're looking for a community that you've always been looking for, of course, we are here. We are not a crisis service. We are not medical professionals. We're peers, um, other men who are who are willing to show up and, and sort of start to navigate this. And of course, there's the tools, like I said, that you can have your own experience with, like the emotional fitness tracker. But um, yeah, and the most open to feedback team of all time. So let us know what you think. I ask every guest to lay a brick of wisdom on the journey to enough. It could be a single word. It could be a quote. It could be a phrase, whatever's on your heart that you would like to share with listeners right now. What would you say? Honor the journey, you know, and it is a journey. So, you know, allow it to be a journey. I wish I could give you a big hug right now. This has been a beautiful conversation. Thank you so much for spending this time with us today and for, for teaching us. Thank you so much. Thank you. What a powerful episode. Thank you so much for hanging with us in a long, whew, intense conversation. I'm so glad that you're here and I look forward to you sharing this. That's the whole point of this podcast. We're trying to change lives. So share this with someone who needs to hear this. I really appreciate your feedback. I've invited you listeners to write into the show and to tell us what episode and what guest and what specific thing you've tried that's been life-changing for you. And we have Bob from America who has told us, and here is a short quote from him. So far, the best bit from your podcast was from Emma Stroud's episode number five, when you were talking about the different parts of our personalities. The question of who was driving the bus clarified how I let different energies drive my bus without being fully aware. Now I ask myself more frequently, who is driving and who's the person I would like to be? Thank you for the great stuff. Bob, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I know Emma's episode has been really popular. If you haven't listened to that one yet, head on over to episode five and check that one out. Next week, Shelly Paxton is rocking the other mic. If you don't know Shelly, she is best known as a rebel leader, movement maker, best-selling author of Soulbatical, A Corporate Rebel's Guide to Finding Your Best Life. She left her big, sexy marketing job at Harley-Davidson to reclaim her own soul and rewrite her script of what success looks like. And now she's on a mission to help a billion souls do the same thing. We are talking about tearing our lives down and getting more real. Here's a little amuse-bouche of what you can expect. I was thinking the other day of a headline that says, we should all be strippers. And I'm not talking the Vegas, take all your clothes off, you know, shake your boobies, like, you know, motorboat some dude, right? However, I am talking about we are being called on this journey toward creating ourselves, as you're saying, to constantly be more and more real and strip away those layers that are no longer serving us. As ever, thank you so much for being here and for sharing. It means the world to me. I look forward to more goodness with you next week. This is Mandy Leto signing out for Enough, the podcast.